first, maybe third of the chapter. Almost half in terms of verses, but in terms of material, it's about the first third. Uh, And I'd also like to say, the very first time I ever preached this message, it was supposed to be under 10 minutes. (laughs) So we'll be stretching things out a bit. Now, I did go 12 minutes, and I did have quite a bit more to say, but I had to stop myself because I knew... uh, If I went much longer, he'd probably start deducting from my grade. But that's right. (laughs) Three different time links. Our first assignment was short. Uh, So anyways, my mistake that I made when when preparing this sermon, at least for a 10-minute length, was uh, that I prepared it exactly how I prepared every other sermon I've ever done for this church. (laughs) And that is that I began to read through the sermon material, the verses, and I started to elaborate. The teacher in me came out. Um, uh, I used this illustration. It reminded me of this. My students and I oftentimes laugh. They often laugh at me. I'm sort of laughing with them about the fact that if we're watching a video or something in class, if I've been kind enough as their teacher, to allow them to watch a video of some sort. I can't stop myself from interjecting. We'll be watching a video. I'm sure my mom's nodding her head very big. Uh, Yeah, sounds just like every movie ever, Seth. Um, You know, we'll be watching something, and every time I see something historical, I just really want to bang it home. Hey, hit that space bar, pause it. Let me remind you guys, we talked about this in our guided notes. We blah, blah, you know. they, they laugh, you know, let us watch the video, Mr. Romines. Uh, but anyways, as I was reading through the scripture, I'm, I'm going to do a little bit of that. You'll notice a good chunk of this time is just me reading through these verses and interjecting various things, uh, evidences, bits of commentary that I've found from the verses. And then uh, I was telling you about a mistake that I made. I, I spent so much time getting through the reading of the verses that once I got to the real meat of the sermon, you might say, I was out of time. (laughs) So I had my three-point sermon, God is like this, God is like this, God is like this. And I had about two minutes to do that stuff. (laughs) So uh, today, I don't think that'll be a problem. I think I can expound on my uh, last two minutes worth of stuff for as long as I want. But I can't promise this will be very long. So let's let's just dive right into the scripture I'll read starting in verse 1 in John chapter 3. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So the first question that I ask myself when I'm going through this passage is, who is Nicodemus? I wanted to investigate in depth, at least from this passage, what can we glean from Nicodemus' background, from his character? What do we know from two verses of information about Nicodemus? So the first thing that I see that is, it jumps out to me, jumps off the page at me, is that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Okay, it almost sends chills down your spine when you think about Jesus' ministry and the impact that the Pharisees would have. On that ministry. Um, They're sort of the bad guys in this story. 
But let's move on from that. Uh, Secondly, I noticed that Nicodemus is a member of the Jewish ruling council, perhaps the Sanhedrin. Many have speculated Nicodemus as a member of the Sanhedrin. Wow, what an accomplishment to to have ascended to that rank within Jewish society very much knowledge of the scripture. Um, you can guarantee he had a whole lot of authority as a leader in the spiritual community among Jews. Thirdly, I noticed, and this is where Nicodemus sort of <clears throat> takes a different route from the other Pharisees, because he's not nearly as closed-minded as many of the Pharisees are. You notice throughout Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees sort of think this way, And when Jesus does something else, they don't question what they believe. They don't say, oh, maybe he is the son of God. He just just forgave someone of their sins. Maybe he is God as he professes. They say, he's blaspheming. He just tried to forgive somebody of their sins. Or they don't think, oh, maybe it is right to heal someone on the Sabbath. They don't think like that. They say, he did something on the Sabbath. That's a sin. And Nicodemus, not so much. What does he say? We know you are from God. Because if you weren't from God, you couldn't be doing all the stuff you're doing, dude. And lastly, perhaps uh, most tellingly of Nicodemus' character, uh, is that Nicodemus chooses to come to Jesus at night. He could be embarrassed to be seen with Jesus. Perhaps all of his other friends are members of this Jewish ruling council or high members of the Jewish society. He may not want to be seen with Jesus for fear of being that weirdo Pharisee that's talking to Jesus. But he could also face some sort of punishment for having uh, consultations with Jesus, for sitting and listening to what Jesus has to say, asking questions of Jesus, calling him rabbi. Um, It's... It's undoubtable, to me at least, it's, it's undoubtable though that Nicodemus does not want to be seen with Jesus. I don't think it's a coincidence that John mentions Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. <clears throat> so, moving on, let's read, uh, let's read verse 3 here. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Okay, there's a subject change there. <laughs> Nicodemus says, we know you're from God, and Jesus says, all right, buddy, cut the chit-chat. Let's get into it. Uh, Jesus, it's almost funny to me that he does this. It reminds me of something that he does in Mark chapter 2, where the Pharisees are thinking something against him, and Jesus reads their mind and speaks to what their minds are thinking. It reminds me of that because it's, I find it entirely possible that Nicodemus said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. And in his mind, he's thinking, all right, how do I get this topic to um, being, being saved? How do I get this to salvation? How do I get this to eternity? You know, How can I move this conversation towards that? And Jesus is like, I'll do it for you, buddy. Let's just skip straight to the... Uh, the real stuff. <clears throat> Just the facts, please, ma'am. That's sort of how Jesus is. Let's, let's look at verse 4 here. Nicodemus is immediately baffled, and he says, <clears throat> How can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. 
Nicodemus perhaps is a, is a believer in that saying from Einstein. Einstein said, if at first an idea is not absurd, then there is no hope for it. Nicodemus is baffled, but importantly, curious. He has no idea what Jesus is talking about, but he's not writing him off as a loon. Tell me more about this, Jesus. So let's read verses 5 through 8. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So, Jesus is setting up here a little bit of contrast. Uh, The first time that I read this verse, I was quite confused. (laughs) Born of water and of the Spirit. I'm thinking, what what is he talking about? And there are really two opinions that I've heard on this matter. And both of them make plenty of sense, and both of them are perfectly fine. I very strongly believe in the opinion that when Jesus speaks of being born of water, he's speaking about being born physically. Physically, the biological process of being born of water. Um, I believe that because in the very next verse, he sets up another contrast. It's sort of parallel. He says, you must be born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. So there's a contrast there, parallel contrast between water and spirit, flesh and spirit. I have heard, however, and this is another great uh, thought process, that being born of water could refer to baptism, that one must be born of water and the spirit. Um, I'm fine with that. Looking through the Greek, I couldn't tell which one was which. So, (laughs) Anyways, when when Jesus starts talking in verse 8 about wind, I couldn't help but think visually. That's what my professor has asked me to do. And since I'm a student, I may as well mention my professor, Dr. Miller, if you're watching, shout out. Um, I couldn't help but think about the senses, right? And when we think about wind, my mind thinks in terms of movies, right? So I go to August Rush. There's this opening scene in this movie, August Rush, with Rush. Which, if you've never seen, I strongly encourage you to go see. It's about this young boy who's a savant. He's uh, incredibly musically talented. He can play any musical instrument after very little time with it. He's got this incredible skill. And this opening scene, he says, I can hear the music. I hear it everywhere, right? And he's just in this open field, and the wind is sweeping across all of these Uh, It's grasses, but they're basically weeds, right? They're just, it's long grass, and the wind is sweeping in waves across the tops. Almost mystically, almost like magically. And I can think as well about having gone to Illinois, and I, it's almost comical. Uh, I get laughed at for saying this, but when we went to Springfield, Illinois, right outside of Springfield where my, my dad's family is from, Mechanicsburg, Illinois, Uh, I talk about the towns being cut out of the corn. You know, you just cut a hole in the corn, build a town, and then there's just more corn, you know. And uh, I I walked upstairs in my dad's cousin's house and looked out across these just 
what felt like miles of corn. Uh, and there are no trees, so it's made to feel like even more uh, because there's nothing in the way. And just watching the wind, and I think it was June or July, so the corn was tall and it was all swaying and golden brown. Beautiful. Um, it also reminds me of Forrest Gump, which is a little different. Then uh, the Spirit works in this way as well. Uh, where Lieutenant Dan is sitting on top of the mast of the shrimping boat, and they've got this hurricane coming through, and he's just screaming at the top of his lungs, and this wind is just whipping across, you know. Um, the thing about the wind is that we, we take its existence for granted, you know. We can see it, uh, sort of. It's very much like the Holy Spirit. And that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is a good preacher. He's preaching one-on-one to Nicodemus, making a reference or making a comparison that Nicodemus can understand. A comparison that many preachers have since used. We stole it from Jesus, right? That the Holy Spirit is like the wind. That it's a physical force that can act upon our lives, yet remains unseen. We don't see it, but we see the results of it. In fact, Jesus is... He's got a play on words here because the Greek word um, that's used for wind is also the word that's used for spirit. So wind and spirit are the same word. The Greek word pneuma. I think I'm pronouncing it correctly. <laughs> Both wind and spirit. So, of course, Nicodemus, predictably, is baffled again in verse 9. How can this be? Nicodemus asks. And Jesus now I'm convinced, does something that he does consistently. This is a strategy that Jesus uses more than once throughout his ministry. And that is, Jesus is going to feign ignorance. He's going to pretend he doesn't know why Nicodemus doesn't know. We know that God is omniscient, right? I had to think about the right omni word. God is omniscient. We know he knows all. Jesus knows every thought Nicodemus is thinking. He knows why Nicodemus is confused. He knows the holdup. But he's going to feign ignorance and begin asking questions of, G- of uh, Nicodemus. He says in verse 10, You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. Uh, do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. He says, you yourself, you are the teacher of all of Israel. You, you're the leading spiritual authority for all of Israel, and you don't understand what's going on here. You're supposed to be an expert in the Scripture. You're supposed to know all of these Old Testament references that I've been making to all of you Pharisees this entire time. He says, Nicodemus, you know the Old Testament. Why don't you know Jeremiah 31, 33? I will put my law within them, and I will... Write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Why don't you know Ezekiel 36 where he says, I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit in you. Right? These are Old Testament scriptures. These are Old Testament concepts. What's going on, man? You're the teacher of Israel. 
It's almost funny. <clears throat> Got to flip to my next page here. Ooh. I can almost hear Jesus' tone of voice here pleading with Nicodemus, right? To give up this, this doubt that he has. For Nicodemus to surrender his soul to this new plan for salvation, this new covenant that's been made between God and his people. Jesus, he uses those Old Testament references over and over again. He's doing his best to get Nicodemus to surrender to the Holy Spirit and, and throw these suspicions out the window. And it's, it's through this, this passage, these first 15 verses, that I think we can glean three major aspects of the plan of salvation. So here, I've gotten to the actual three points, right? The important part. And the first major point is that Jesus won't make you believe. Isn't that funny? He could, right? We know that Jesus is also omnipotent. He's all-powerful, uh, but he won't. Uh, much of his love lies in his restraint. I've got a dog. You guys know about Zeus. He's very big. Um, if I were to put him on a leash and take him outside, I said, I'm going to teach him the command, come. And I were to put him on a leash and I said, Zeus, come. And nothing happened. I said, Zeus, come. And nothing happened. And so I just dragged him over to me, right, using his leash. And then I sat him down again. I walked away. I said, come. And I dragged him back over to me. Would that have any value in terms of actual obedience of the dog? Could I say, oh, yeah, he knows the command, come. Let me go get his leash. No. No. That's, that's the exact same reason Jesus can't make us surrender to him, right? Jesus can't say, oh, yeah, they answer to my will. Watch this. Let me convict them real quick. Or they answer to my will. Watch this. Let me just control them real fast. That's not how he works. In fact, I can think of an example from the Bible when John the Baptist sends someone to Jesus and says, are you the one who is to come or should we wait for another? Remember, John fails here. He's trying to force Jesus' hand, force him into this role of Messiahship that all of Israel has been expecting. And Jesus won't do it. Jesus said, you've seen the signs. You go back and you tell him. The blind can see. The lame are healed. The sick are healed. The dead are brought to life. Jesus won't say, I'm the Messiah. Come and worship me. The value in salvation is that we come to him. The value in that command come is that Zeus comes to me. Not that I bring him to me. The second major aspect of the plan of salvation I think we can glean here is that we can't make salvation happen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank goodness. I remembered what that scripture was. I thought I was about to have to flip and be awkward for a second. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 tell us we can't make it happen, right? And thank God, lest any man should boast. Jesus says you must be born of water and of the Spirit. You must be physically born, and you must be born through some move of the Holy Spirit. It's not something that you can control. This is one that the Pharisees and perhaps Nicodemus needed to learn 
right? The Pharisees had this whole set of rules, this extensive set of laws that they had made for the people of Israel. You can't press elevator buttons on Sunday, right? That's the people of Israel way back in in Jesus' time were worried about elevator buttons, I'm sure. But you can't walk a certain distance. You can't uh, prepare food. You can't do all of these things, all these extensive minuscule rules for society on how to remain holy and how to, you know, get yourself to this state of living a pleasing life before the eyes of God. And the simple fact of the matter is that you just can't do it. We can't do it. Not on your own. And the final, and this one, this one emerged from me sort of just asking questions of the Scripture, which is a very good interpretive practice. I'd encourage you to try that if you're reading Scripture. Ask questions. Well, what about blah, blah, blah? Right? And then investigate. But the final, the final point emerged from this. My professor asked us to begin asking ourselves questions like a lot of questions. Now, maybe don't go this far. But he asked us to ask just almost, almost annoying. Ask so many questions almost to the point of annoyance. You're becoming a nuisance to yourself and your, your, your search through the Scripture. And I couldn't help but think of a toddler. Um, I've, I've never had one yet. Obviously, I'm on my way. But I can remember being around kids that ask a lot of questions. And most of the time, what's the question? That lovely three-letter word. Why? Right? Why? Something smells. Why? I don't know. There's just something stinky in the air. Why? Why can we smell it? I don't know. Uh, God, our neurosensory things can, can come in co- contact with particles of that smell, and it makes us smell it. Well, why? Because God made us that way. Why? Oh, crud, right? Sometimes they'll ask, they'll ask these, this simple question so many times that they get to this very existential, deep question. Why? Well, why did God make us? Uh, uh, right? You're, you're a little, <laughs> wow, that's a... That's a three-year-old asking me that question, or that's a four-year-old. Um, but sometimes they'll stumble across something that's particularly profound like that. Why am I alive? Why did God make us? Why did Jesus come to this earth? Why? I was asking myself these questions. Why did Nicodemus come to Jesus? Well, why was Jesus there when Nicodemus came? Why was Jesus on this earth at all? You ask yourself these annoying questions and arrive at something baffling a little. <laughs> um, and if we think about this with our human brains, there's not a reason we can come up with. Maybe earth was better than heaven. No, absolutely not. Maybe being a human was something that Jesus wanted to experience. No. There's no human logic. Maybe Jesus wanted to hear the sound of a bird or see the sunset or something no that's corny um it could only have been the salvation plan right it could only have been as a part of the plan that was laid out and the third point 
the third point of the message, the third thing I think from this passage that we can glean about salvation's plan is that God loves us enough to sacrifice his son himself for us. And as a parent, that means significantly more to me now. I used to think, well, I'll understand that when I have kids, right? And I'm a lot closer to understanding it now that I have a kid. Like, I love y'all. And I would like stomp you into a mud puddle to keep, to keep my baby safe. You know what I'm saying? I, would, whew, I wouldn't think twice. You know what I'm saying? I would not sacrifice that baby for anything. Man, I'm not God, right? God was willing to sacrifice his son, his son, his blood, his child for you and for me. And so the answer to the question, why did Jesus come to earth? The answer to the question is the last verse of our passage. It comes from John 3, 1 through John 15. Sorry, John 3, 1 through John 3, 15. Oh, I butchered that. But John 3, 16, this so overquoted verse, this incredibly uh, memorized and, and yet not understood verse, comes from this conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. That everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. In verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. This is the why. This is why Jesus is here. This is why Jesus is having this conversation with Nicodemus. This is why any of us can experience salvation. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is Jesus' purpose for having come to earth. To provide for us a way to salvation. And I hope, I hope that moving forward, this makes you, uh, having, having heard these three things, maybe you'll go back and listen to this sermon again, or you'll at least write down the three things, right? Having heard these three things, having read through this passage will make you a more effective evangelist, will make the plan of salvation more meaningful to you will make experiencing salvation more fulfilling to you. Let's stand and pray, and we can go to Sunday school a little early this morning.